Welcome to the Toxpod. I'm Peter Stockham. Thank you very much for joining us here at the very special recording of the 59th Annual Meeting of the International Association of Forensic Toxicologists, combined with the 30th meeting of the French Society, SFTA. Uh, with me again, we have the TF Bulletin editing team. Sarah Willer from NICC in Brussels is back on stage. She was in Birmingham, of course, and now probably in her last duty as a bulletin editor. Thanks again, Sarah. Uh, Rebecca Hartman. She's from Monroe County Toxicology Laboratory, taking uh, Sarah's place as both an editor and, of course, ToxPod co-host. Welcome, Rebecca. And, of course, Jennifer Schumann from the VIFM in Australia. Thanks for joining us again, Jen. Let's uh, please welcome our guests, if we can. So, three editors and lots of science to digest, and it all started back on Monday before the actual official start of the conference, and the main event then was, of course, the Young Scientists Symposium. Uh, maybe we can tell us a little bit about uh, what the Young Scientists uh, organisation does. Well, hello, everybody, and uh, yes, of course, uh, I'm retired now from the Young Scientists Committee, but um, actually, it was always very nice to do, and I think it's a, an amazing opportunity for young scientists to get together and, you know, to... Uh, contact each other afterwards and have nice collaborations following up. So, Rebecca, how was the meeting in the Young Scientists this year? Oh, it was lovely. Um, so, we got to hear from a lot of current committee members as well as award winners from the last couple of years. So, we get to get a sense of what they're doing now and how the research is going but it's also really just a great opportunity for people to present in a less intimidating environment. I'll never forget my first TEFT. You could probably not uh, differentiate my face from a stop sign, I think. <laughs> so. It's a great opportunity for, for people who are just beginning their careers and bringing their re research uh, to come in a, a non-intimidating environment to talk to others and communicate. I think. Yeah, it's, it really is. And so this, um, TF's a pretty broad association, it's called the Forensic Toxicology Association, but there are some allied field um, researchers that come to TF, and we're member, members of TF, so if you're interested in becoming a member, why not contact your regional representative, just go to the TF website. So, in-person meetings are back. Um, it's obviously a lot more expensive to come, as we all know, to an in-person meeting compared to a Zoom conference. How do you... Uh, What's the benefit of an in-person conference? I mean, surely we can now meet up by Zoom. It's much cheaper. It's just as good. I really think that after the scientific sessions, um, you know, having a pint together and getting to know each other is really very important because later on, if you need help from, you know, a specialist in a, in a, a specific field, you can always email them and they'll remember your face and, you know, answer and get back to you and also nice collaborations follow up. Um, that's, that's how actually like the validation papers with Frank Peters started off and so yeah it's just nice to, to move on from a personal contact and it's much easier to email someone that you've actually met right so yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. yeah it's easier to email a friend than it is to email a stranger so that's the most important thing for me I think for in-person conferences but explaining that to an accountant type manager who's not involved in science at all can be difficult sometimes I would say don't get me started, but uh, yeah, that's actually, that's true, that you really have to do that and um, show them 
the benefits of uh, you know the knowledge or the visits you can make to other labs. It wouldn't happen if you don't know people personally. I'm sure there's. I was just going to say, and unfortunately, I think the burden of proof is a little higher than it used to be now since we've been through the pandemic. Uh, everybody sees, oh wait, we can just have a Zoom meeting or a, an online thing, and why should I pay all this extra money for you to travel across the world to have the same science that you could have gotten sitting at your desk? So. Yeah. And I think it wouldn't take very many years before you saw a decrease in the quality and the volume of research that came out if you did stop people going to meetings altogether. Yeah, I think that's true. And also the science is obviously a huge part of it, but the networking and potential collaboration is such a huge part of it as well. I know even for the bulletin content, we um, attract a lot of our content for the next issue by um, talking to different people who are presenting their orals and posters and, uh, and also just from meeting people who are interested in publishing some of their work in future issues. It's harder for them to say no to your face. <laughs> We've all been chased around by a bulletin editor at some point. Yeah, I stopped stalking. From yeah. now on, I won't do that anymore. <laughs> Promise. So, coming to a live conference is very important. So, you should be bothering your uh, local toxicology organisations to get some funding to come to Rome next year. And also, don't forget the TRIAF Travel Awards. And metabolomics featured strongly again, more strongly, I think, than in Birmingham. Uh, it really is taking off in a lot of laboratories, probably fueled by more access to high-resolution mass spectrometers and things like that, I think. Where do you think it's going? Metabolomics or high-resolution mass spectrometry? Metabolomics, to start with. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I, um, I think it's very interesting because, of course, there are lots of uh, toxicological questions that we still need to answer, and it's a nice all-around approach. Um, so, but I think there is lots of work still to be done, you know, to find the biomarkers then and then, you know, to do uh, also kind of studies that really demonstrate the usefulness in, in our routine work. So, um, but it's, it's really interesting and I'm happy it's, it's happening and there are lots of presentations uh, of metabolomics at, at, even at this meeting. Seems pretty early stages right now from what I've gathered at this conference, but... I see a lot of potential. Um, things like the drowsiness markers. Uh, I'd want to see some evidence that there was not overlap with normality, you know, because everybody's got different circadian rhythms and things like that. But I think there's a lot of future potentially if we can find some clear differentiation there that's objective. But there is a lot of demand to knowledge about those types of uh, techniques because drowsiness, for example, in drugs and driving, it's not a drug, but there are people or organizations out there that really want to know how we can tackle it in a broader way. So looking into sleep, deprivation, and other aspects. So I think metabolomics will be the way to go there. And so metabolomics is basically a, an extremely broad assessment of all the chemicals in various samples and then trying to extract different um, components of that as markers, isn't it? So at the moment, while we see all these graphs of overlapping Venn diagrams and uh, blobs everywhere that don't seem to make a lot of sense because they partially overlap, is the end product going to be just one or two chemicals mainly that are going to be the ones that we're going to be looking at? I hope so, but at the end it's never as simple as we hope it to be, so we'll see how it goes. Well, toxicology has never been simple, so... Well, we're used to that sort of thing, and we can get up to those challenges. I wonder, too, if ratios between some of these chemicals is, are going to be helpful moving forward, because one thing on its own is just 
it could mean anything, but if you look at the relationship between, say, cortisol and arginine, you know, what does that tell you versus just the one? So we'll have to keep an eye on that, any eventualities coming out of that. So methods for, high analysis, uh, methods for analysis using high-resolution mass spec have really come of age now. There's quite a few talks everyone seems to be using, or a lot of people seem to be using. What's the advantage of using high-resolution mass spec, Sarah? Well, I think the challenge that we have now as a toxicologist is really to, um, you know, we have to screen so many compounds like the NPS, the classical drugs, um, maybe even steroids and so on. So I think the advantage is that you can really broadly screen, do a targeted as well as untargeted analysis. Um, yeah, that's the main advantage, I, I believe, yeah. They're becoming easier and easier to use, but uh, as you... When your colleagues mentioned recently in a review about high-resolution mass spec validation and identification guidelines, uh, we really do need to work on uh, improving how we're doing that these days. Yeah, I think once you run things in, in routine, you have so many demands concerning, uh, you know, like ISO 17025 accreditation. It needs to be validated. You have to have a quality assurance. And um, I think we really have to think about guidelines and, and identification criteria just to make our life also a little bit simpler and uh, to get the most out of the technique for our routine applications. Yeah, so you have to have guidelines. Yeah, you're right. So they actually help you get that analysis done more efficiently rather than having many grey areas. And speaking of high-resolution mass spec, lots of people are using for NPS. Um, so NPS really only a tiny proportion of most people's general toxicology workflow but they do consume a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of effort. I don't know about you, but I've just given up keeping track of um, new synthetic cannabinoids, and I'm just hoping someone else in our lab is actually looking after it for me. But um, even though it's a small proportion of our work, things like uh, some of the very dangerous NPS, like opioids and ones like that, really indicate that we really have to keep an eye on these things. And, of course, um, there's lots of talk about early warning systems, which we'll go into in a minute as well, which uh, are evolving around the world. One very important part of um, NPS, I think, is Hi-Res NPS website. Uh, it's the only website where you can... It's a collaborative effort from toxicologists all around the world trying to solve the problem of identifying compounds that you don't even have a reference standard for. So let's just hope that keeps going strongly. And... Um, Tim's going to roll his eyes and say he's talking about high-res NPS again, but it really has become an essential tool for all forensic labs. And if you want to join high-res NPS, just uh, Google it and uh, follow the links and sign up for free. So at the other end of the um, complexity scale, we've got these methods that can pick up thousands of compounds, but what's been prominent in this conference is at least four or five, maybe even six, posters and talks about uh, nitrite, one of the simplest of molecules. Why are we finding it so complex to do nitrite? Well, I think part of it is just that it's not something that we look for routinely anymore. So it's not the sort of thing that every lab is going to have readily available. And when we've got all these new validation requirements and we have to keep in t uh, on top of all of the NPS as well, Sometimes resources are better diverted here versus there, and, and so I think it's just not really a priority for labs to put in um, the methodology for it. And so what is um, the significance of nitrite? Just as some background, uh, nitrite's been used um, in assisted dying. Well, not in assisted dying, I'm sorry. So people are now resorting to using methods like this, such, such as nitrite. Previously, they were using 
um, hydrogen sulfide and helium as alternative methods for suicide. So it does indicate that there is a need to deal with that, but that's not really our job. We just have to analyse the samples as they come in. When you've got something like nitrite, which is not the typical thing that we analyse in the lab, we have often suicide notes, we have materials at the scene, and also with nitrite you have methemoglobin levels. Is that enough to say it's a nitrite death? But I think it's always in a case, it's a collaboration between, you know, police, uh, the coroner and the toxicologist. I think that's really something that more effort also should be put into um, in, in a good collaboration because as a toxicologist, you know, you can't measure every possible compound out there. Um, just remember this week also the, the session about plant toxins. It's not like you can do that on a daily basis or in a routine lab. So it all comes down to getting as much information as possible and thinking about the case and then trying to establish, um, I would say, a, a cost-beneficial and efficient uh, screening procedure. And I think it's also important knowing all of the details for um, public health and intervention opportunities because if we don't know what's happening and what the risk factors are and what people are using for things like suicide, then there's no opportunity to intervene and prevent deaths in future. When you can't confirm something, obviously that's not ideal, but as Sarah said, the collaborative effort with investigation is very helpful and sometimes an ME can get away with if it's well documented enough in the history and everything else, just calling something complications of probable, and, and that still allows it to be known, but acknowledge the fact that we can't confirm it to the level that we might normally. So we should still confirm drugs, even though we find uh, drug packets at the scenes, I guess. So. That's clear, because you never know what's in a drug packet. Ah, OK, yeah. fair enough. So, validation. Uh, when I first started in toxicology, if you didn't have at least two or three slides about validation in your talk, basically uh, you were probably cast to the lions and people would stand up and say, I want to see the validation. What's changed? I mean, people, uh, are we doing less validation now or are people, is it just assumed? I think we assume that validation is done properly. Um which is maybe not always the case, but I think certainly at, at TF, you know, people are aware of it and they do their best to do a, a, the best validation uh, that's possible. Yeah, I think the, the message is out now that that can't go unconsidered and you have to come to something like this prepared to answer those questions. But I think the conversation and what people are devoting their 10 minutes to is changing a little bit to focus more on the interpretation and what we can do with the data, but still people know that anyone can say, you know, show me the proof, and you have to be ready for that too. So. Now, we mentioned a little bit before about early warning systems. There are quite a few talks and posters on early warning systems that are emerging. Uh, we've had some systems that have been around, like the EMCDDA, for 25 years, and other places are really only just getting started. I'm talking about you, Australia. So why, what's the difference between these uh, different organisations or groups of countries and that are doing early warning systems and those that aren't? Uh, well, I think there's a variety of reasons. I think when uh, the countries are smaller, when they're not made up of multiple different jurisdictions with different rules and regulations, um, it, it makes it a lot easier. And that's the thing with Australia. We've got a whole lot of different states and territories all working separately with se separate state labs. 
and we've had to all um, coordinate to work towards the national early warning system. So it's taken a few years, but we've made a lot of progress and, and there are a lot of different countries at different stages of implementation of these early warning systems, as we've heard at this meeting. Obviously, there was the EMCDDA talk on Tuesday. We've heard um, some other orals about um, the Italian systems and French systems. There's a few posters as well. New Zealand... Uh, developing their own early warning system as well. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of action happening in this space. Even the EU is a, um, obviously a bunch of countries. They seem to have managed to do it 25 years ago. But is that, um, <laughs> is that because maybe they treat uh, drugs less of a legal issue and more of a health-related problem? Yeah, I think that is a, a big, a really important part of this whole conversation. We know that... Portugal decriminalised drugs about 20 years ago now. Um, so they've taken a very uh, different approach to, uh, to, to substance abuse. Um, they take more of a health approach. And even we heard Mark from Switzerland the other day talk about uh, the four pillars um, of drug policy in Switzerland, which also takes much more of a health policy approach. Uh, just recently, British Columbia de decriminalised drugs. They're taking more of a health approach. In Australia, it's still very much a justice approach where you're penalised um, for even possession. So I think the conversation is changing a lot. Even the United Nations back in 2016 uh, really um, advocated for substance abuse being a, a health problem rather than a justice problem. So I think um, really it's a matter of cultural change and that takes a lot longer. The um, call to just say no to drugs doesn't seem to work, does it? No, I think it's a bit outdated. <laughs> <laughs> well, they keep using it. So, this has been a very successful meeting in terms of the number of um, presentations. There were 100 um, oral slots. There were over a nearly 190 posters as well, which was a huge number of presentations. And there's so much science here, and it's a, a pretty compacted schedule, even at any TF meeting. What are your thoughts on uh, having concurrent sessions in TF meetings? Well, I'm not a big fan. I like to, to be, you know, see all the action. I don't think there has been one or two TF meetings that I've been to that have had concurrent, meeting, concurrent sessions or maybe um, they're a local meeting. But I think it's good when everybody can get together and, and all listen to the same information from the presenters rather than, you know, going off into little groups and hearing about different streams. I would agree with that. I also think in the meetings that I've been to that are concurrent sessions, it becomes a real trust exercise where the moderators in both rooms have to be very good about keeping time. And, and usually one side or the other kind of lags a little, and then you end up missing half of the next presentation that you wanted to hear. So I think it's tricky to get a good concurrent session going. And I think with the numbers of, I would say, a TF-only meeting, you can still pull this off. Of course, when it's a joint meeting, TF soft, then it's uh, difficult because, of course, we have so many people that want to give a talk and then, of course, you have to give them the opportunity, but otherwise, I'm also a big fan of, you know, one, uh, one session at a time. Yeah. Um, in such a very narrow field like forensic tox, it's pretty diverse, but I think every laboratory has to know, or every toxicologist has to know all branches of toxicology, drugs and drivers, coronial tox, so, yeah, let's keep try and keep it uh, all in one session. I think also broadening your interests is always a good thing uh, to do. And with concurrent sessions, you're sort of tempted to keep following the same stream of information that you always have. So I think with the single session, you get a much broader understanding of everything that's going on in the field across the conference. 
So back to the posters. There's so many posters there, and the meetings are always so busy. I noticed there were a couple of posters there that tried to draw them to attention to themselves with some pop-out photographs, and there was one there with a, a 3D prop on it to sort of attract your attention. What are some other ideas to try and get people to read your poster? No idea. <laughs> <laughs> I can give you a tip. Yeah. <laughs> Giant slabs of text are really difficult to read quickly, and I think um, it's much better to use infographics, uh, some you know, large graphs, minimise the text, just get your point over quickly. And the abstracts uh, were all published, they're quite long, so there's, there's opportunity there for a normal amount of information to go on your abstract. So, you know, just leave your poster for the main bits. That's what I think. And also, we should mention that the abstracts are available to everyone, so if uh, you never got to this meeting, you can just look up the abstracts in uh, the Toxicology Analytic and Clinic. The, that's the SFTA's uh, journal. Uh, so look, look up the journal, look up the abstracts, and then contact the author. They'd love to hear from you to get some interest. Yeah, we actually got a comment. Um, I, I also serve on the communications committee, and so we've been posting about the different sessions, including the poster sessions, and we got a comment asking for all the PDFs. Uh, we can't do that, but we do recommend that you contact the authors and ask them because they'd love to have a conversation with you, I'm sure, and it's also a great opportunity to network a little. That could be something to do during the gala dinner, actually. Yes. <laughs> okay, so I think that might be all we have time for, actually, everyone. So um, thank you very much for coming in and watching the, this live podcast. Uh, thanks to a live audience, and also thank to those listeners here for coming up to me and, and saying that they listen to us, because sometimes we don't know if anyone's listening, and it's good to get some feedback. And uh, thank you very much to John Claude and the AV team here for organising this for us and for allowing this recording to happen at this lunchtime session. Um, thanks for listening, and let's see you all in Rome. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.